You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Today's guest is, not to mince words, one of the most influential journalists of the past decades. It's partly because of her position as the editor-in-chief of Time Magazine during the past decade, partly too because she's a pioneer, the first woman to hold that title at the 100-year-old publication, partly too because of her continued influence on the profession through her current role as the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and certainly not least because she is an extraordinarily gifted thinker and writer who wrote more cover stories for time than anyone in its history, framing politics, current affairs, and culture for millions of readers. She's interviewed five presidents and dozens of other world leaders, and is a frequent speaker on politics and the press. And she's no slouch in the leadership category herself, having steered time through a period of wrenching digital disruption. All to say, we're not going to run out of things to talk about. Welcome, Nancy Gibbs. Nice to be with you. Nancy, where are you calling in from? Stamford, Connecticut, where uh, I have been in you know, our pandemic lockdown. We are gradually getting back to campus, but uh, this has pretty much been where I've spent the last year and a half. Okay, well, there are worse places to sweat out a pandemic. Um, let's talk about, um, uh, about the arc of your career. The world knows you as one of the most eloquent voices at one of the most influential publications of the last century, and then the leader of that publication. So I think it's instructive to sort of follow how your career proceeded. How did, how did you get started in journalism? And what was it like? How would you track your rise through the organization that was Time Magazine? It was uh, a mixture of, as these things are, you know, work, luck, uh, fate, and deliberate accident, I think, that I weirdly, coming out of graduate school um, back in the mid-1980s when a lot of my classmates were heading to Wall Street, which was, you know, very much where the action seemed to be, I was not actually interested in going into journalism. I was very specific that I was intrigued by these places that tried to capture events in the sort of first draft of history way that journalists presumptuous their mission, but not on a on a day-to-day basis like at a newspaper or a network, much less in the pre-internet age. We weren't even thinking about the kind of minute-to-minute metabolism of, of Twitter. Um, but the idea of the weekly news magazines at that time, you know, Time and Newsweek were still sort of titans in the journalism space where you had a chance to look at the arc of events over the course of a week and try to make sense of them. And that was very appealing to me. It's, so it was a very specific kind of storytelling I was interested in. Not opinion journalism or the real lean back, deep, you know, monthly work of a place like the Atlantic, um, but not the day-to-day you know, frenzy of the newsroom with the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so I went to time as a fact checker, which was the only job I could persuade them to hire me for. And it's ironic now as we think about the role that fact checking plays and the way we have come to think about the need for us all to be fact checkers in the media that we consume. I now, you know, many years later have reason to be grateful for the boot camp they put me through in how to not just make sure that the dates were right, 
but whether the conclusion that a writer drew in his story, and in that time it was always his story, um, was a fair one or not. And if not, how does that conclusion need to be adjusted to really be fair? And in a way that drew on every class I had ever taken in moral philosophy and political philosophy and American history uh, and literature. And so I was so happy doing it. And it was so interesting. And the people around me were so spectacularly uh, inspiring and compelling that uh, I had never had any desire to work anywhere else. So I stayed for a long time. Uh, I started at the same company as a fact checker, too. And uh, it really was a great training, a real apprenticeship for, for journalism. Uh, you were the first woman editor of Time magazine. Uh, and being part of that big, vast magazine conglomerate, I remember it as very much a, a boys club. Did you face obstacles that were thrown up because of your gender? Yes, and it would be you know naive to to diminish those, but I can also at the same time think of people who maybe the the good fortune of the timing, like a generation of women ahead of me, had just been barreling through the locked doors and breaking walls down. That there were also people who I felt were very determined to help uh, an aspiring young woman succeed. And so for everyone who was sort of sneering and condescending, what business do you have writing about these subjects? There was someone else who would sort of take me aside and show me the ropes and, and try to help me understand what success would look like and, and how to achieve it. And some editors who were so fiercely protective of their writers, they practically paced outside your office while you were writing to keep anyone from interfering with your, your uh, train of thought. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a very, you know, very much an old boys club, very much, you know, an old Ivy League boys club. But I benefited from the fact that mine was also the first generation of women who went to those same schools, who had been taught by the same professors, who had belonged to the same clubs. And so as other parts of society were starting to open up to women, so too did these, did these institutions. Um, time uh, still exists, uh, but it doesn't have anywhere near the footprint that it once had or anything like the influence it once had. Um, and the same has been true of many other national publications, um, many of which have gone out of business or, or are just uh, shadows of themselves. What has been lost in that transition? Uh, such a good question, Eric. And, and I think about it because I realized that one of the things that I, I enjoyed most about time was exactly that it had such a large audience and that it was not an audience that was concentrated on the coasts or just in big cities or just among Democratic America or Republican America. It was it really was a kind of pretty demographically representative slice of the public of people who wanted to stay informed, who were busy, who may or may not have time to really religiously read a daily newspaper or watch the news every night, but were engaged enough in national and world affairs and business and culture that they wanted the breadth that uh, magazines like Time and Newsweek gave them. And so you were speaking across identities, across ideologies, across geographies. And that to me was the both the challenge and the pleasure of it. And, and of course, in our very atomized media ecosystem now, there are fewer and fewer places that can even aspire to do that. Frankly, the business model doesn't support it. The business model is much more likely to reward an intensely engaged audience 
that may be a tiny fraction of the size of a great big national audience. And so in some ways it is uh, the world changed and the, certainly the information environment changed in ways that made the viability of whether a big national broadcast network having you know, hundreds of correspondents all around the country and the world, or a magazine like Time having hundreds of correspondents around the country and the world just was not financially viable in you know the 21st century the way it had been dominant in the ecosystem in the 20th. So all of those jobs in journalism were lost, all of those careers cut short um, or, or just never offered uh, after a certain point. Was there also a kind of loss in cultural identity? If everyone was looking at the world through the lens created for them by by Time and Newsweek, say, um, something it seems was lost there, a, a, a kind of national perspective. So, or, or am I romantic in the past? Well, you've exactly put your finger on the tension, right? So in the days of the gatekeepers, whether it was Walter Cronkite or Edward R. Murrow, uh, the editors of Time and Newsweek, of the Wall Street Journal, the, the voices of, of the evening news, um, those were enormously powerful voices who had the ability, you know, when Walter Cronkite, you know, came out uh, with his perspective on the Vietnam War, that was a, you know, fatal blow to an administration trying to tell a different story about the, pro the progress of the war. So on the one hand, um, when there were fewer choices, there were, we also heard fewer voices. There were many voices that had very little chance of breaking through the, the dominance of those gatekeepers. It made the world feel, certainly made it more possible to have a sense of, of a shared worldview. It did not, however, guarantee kind of domestic social harmony. If you think about, ironically, the high point of trust in the media occurs depending on whose you know, surveys you want to cite, either sometime in the late 60s, early 70s which is a period of enormous social disruption and dislocation and protests and bombings. And, you know, so it wasn't as though having this big mainstream media uh, guaranteed that we all saw the world the same way, not at all. And, you know, the arrival mm. of the internet mm. certainly mm. meant that voices that, that were once marginalized now have far more opportunity to find and build an audience. But it also has meant that uh, voices that were marginalized for a reason, because they were peddling conspiracies and misinformation or were dangerously um, looking to incite violence, there was a reason those voices were marginalized successfully and we are paying the price for the inability to now keep those from being able to spread their message to millions and millions of people. So I don't know if there is some uh, idealized balance between a more democratic ecosystem that operates in the public interest, that allows for uh, access to audiences across all sorts of ideological and, and demographic differences, while still not giving oxygen to voices that are toxic. And we are seeing, as literally people are dying every day, you know, misinformation now, we are living with the idea that misinformation is not just a bad thing, not just corrosive to democracy, although it is all those things. It is actually a life and death challenge as people who to literally to their dying breath are believing things that they have been told that are not true. 
And so I think one of the challenges we are facing and something we're working on very hard at the Shorenstein Center is imagining what would it, what would a public interest internet look like? What kinds of, of guardrails might you put up that are respectful of free speech, respectful of the, the small L liberal tradition of um, trying to, to have ideas be sharpened by virtue of lively debate uh, not in any way trying to, to mitigate differences and conflict, and yet being able to um, not be amplifying, at the very least, the voices that are the most dangerous. And right now we have this perverse incentive system where it isn't even a fair fight between reliable sources of information and unreliable. It is typically the most outrageous voices, the most extreme. The algorithms are designed to love and amplify. And so that is where I think you are now seeing really a, a, a by the day growing backlash against the recklessness of companies whose focus on engagement and its contribution to their bottom line is coming directly at the expense of the health of society, at the expense of the health uh, of society. I, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the, the goals of the Shorenstein Center. And I think that a lot of people who are watching this will be delighted to hear that you have identified some solutions or ways forward. Uh, so far, I think that um, most of the coverage of misinformation and disinformation and polarization has focused on the kind of the, the, the challenge of overcoming this and the sort of ingrained even sort of neuroscience behind polarization. What, to answer the question that you're asking at Chorsey, what do you seeing about what a internet in the public interest would would even look like? What are the steps we can take in that direction? It's a really good question. And I think, you know, you're right that even as journalists, we have a, a reflex, what we used to call in our newsroom, uh, of a tendency to admire the problem. Right. And we spend so much time admiring the problem that we never get to the, okay, but so what? And realistically, I don't think either you know, the Shorenstein Center or anyone at Harvard or anyone in any, any think tank or university is going to be able to hand down the stone tablets that dictate what a public interest internet would look like. But I do think that it's our job uh, as sort of members of civil society and as scholars to lay out options, both for lawmakers, because you're seeing, you know, in actually in Europe and, and uh, Australia and other countries, even movement towards uh, government regulation of platforms and for the for the technology companies themselves some of this is going to be i think uh protocols that are adopted internally some of it is going to be imposed by you know legislative fiat or you know, the courts externally so i think it is a balance our job is to weigh the pros and cons of different approaches and lay out a menu of options for private companies and for public leaders to be um, endorsing and is ever uh, greater data privacy and kind of opt in about having your data be able to be shared to more algorithmic transparency to the sharing of it. I mean, the, the, the platforms will share the information that is in their interest to share with researchers and public. And so they will say, we will often hear from Facebook that we have taken down X number of millions of pages that were promoting vaccine misinformation. We, they will not tell us how many people saw those pages or how many pages are still up or how much engagement happened with. And so as long as they are deciding what we know and what we don't know, it's very hard even to frame solutions that could work because 
you know, it's it's still too much of a black box. And so I think that the the challenge to us is going to be to um, look at alternatives that have costs and benefits to them. But it is going to be up to the public and it's going to be up to public leaders and it's going to be up to private companies to weigh which of these on the whole are going to make most sense and do the most good and have the most benefit um, and which ones come at too high a cost, including a cost in values that we care about. Um, there, It's easy now to forget the ways in which the growth of these platforms has had enormous benefits. We read so much more about the harm so apparent to us right now that you know, you don't want to lose the opportunity. But there are experiments in places, you know, even like in Vermont of, ex of an experiment with, with a kind of public platform for exploring civic engagement where if you write a post, it doesn't go up for 24 hours. So you, you have time if you are sort of, you know, sitting angrily activated by something that you read to sleep on it and the next day think okay i don't know that i want to actually say that so, like you know what there are a million different experiments that we can do and uh i think ideas that we could test about how do you maintain access and openness and engagement while um not speaking to the worst in us and this is what makes me saddest as we, you know, this fall marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and we're therefore reminded of how that horrible event ignited in so many individuals in so many places, this powerful feeling of community and desire to help. And, you know, as a native New Yorker, you know, the, the strange experience of people making eye contact on the subway was just very unusual. Oh, we actually mm -hmm. are in community together. We actually are in a position to protect and lift one another up. And that is the feeling I think that was so poignant in a lot of the commemorations. It was not just remembering the loss in life, which was, you know, catastrophic and heartbreaking but a loss in institutional power, uh, whatever the institution, trust in government, trust in the media. You know, for the media, I heard in journalists recalling where they were that day and what they did, this wistfulness of knowing that, and the stories they went to great lengths to tell were believed. And the audience that they were serving relied on them Tell me the information I need to know to be informed and safe and to protect my family and community. 20 years later, journalists are trying to get information out to inform people and keep them safe and protect their families and having it be dismissed as politically motivated or unreliable. And so that arc of even the decline of trust in the press had been steady from the 70s you know, until 2001 and has continued since. I do think that the contrast between an immense sudden national challenge that year and how all of our institutions responded to it and the one that we've been living through for the last year and a half and how our institutions have responded to it is a very poignant one. Um, that's really well said. You know, the, it's obvious though that the decline in trust was already underway even in 2001, um, the rise of right-wing radio, and um, it, which also predated Trump, and maybe Trump was a, 
uh, a creature of it. How much of that rolling decline in trust that our profession faces was brought on by us and our own behavior, or as you said earlier, by our own business models? I think a lot. Um, some of it, you know, it's bittersweet um, for all the right reasons and others of it for all the wrong reasons. So the all the right reasons part, um, if you think about this, the sort of heyday of, of journalism as being Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein and the ability of, of you know, hard charging reporters to do the work and dig to the point that the, the corruption at the highest levels of government can be exposed and the Constitution and the courts can do their work and democracy can be saved by journalists shining a light in dark corners, right? And that this is what journalism was designed to do. It's why it's the only constitutionally protected industry. And that that, you know, maybe it's an idealized version of, of journalism that uh, is, uh, was overvalorized. But certainly what happened in the, in the, the years that followed where lots of, you know, very talented people who were very highly educated, had a lot of choices of what they could do with their lives, decided that journalism was a calling. And it was a mission. It was a kind of public service. Uh, and that their job was to expose what wasn't working, to expose corruption, to expose venality, to, uh, to shine the light in the dark corners. Well, the problem with that is that it's not surprising then that readers would come away thinking that, you know, all bureaucracies are corrupt and bureaucrats are lazy and money is being wasted. And because all they're reading is about this or that program that is wasted. It is, it was much less likely that journalists were going to spend their time seeking out and writing about things that were working and ways that communities were benefiting from this or that institution's contribution or that this or that institution, whether government or a public institution or a private one, it doesn't matter. Um, we don't write about what's working any more than we write about how many planes land safely every day. And so I think with the, uh, the explosive growth and, and the, the uh, maybe idealization of investigative reporting, you get a lot more investigative reporting and so you get a lot more investigations. And it is good that we were discovering things that um, weren't working, but it was too easy to lose sight of what was. And the period of certainly that, you know, the 1990s and the 2000s, where if you look globally at just extraordinary advances in science and medicine, hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty. The, uh, the fact that the computing power that we held in our hands went from being, you know, our original cell phones that were like a brick and, you know, to being now we all have a supercomputer in our hands. All a million different ways in which um, life became better for so many people in so many places. That's not a story on any given day, whereas it is a story if this or that governor is on the tape. So I think for the for the, the most understandable reasons, journalists were right to uh, view their mission as being one of accountability. It's entirely true and appropriate. But there's an, there's an important need for, for the balance of also being willing to write about things that are working without having your colleagues accuse you of writing a puff piece, which, as you know, is typically what would happen. 
that's the so that's the unintended consequence. On the other side, there is then uh-huh. just the reality that the outrage industry is very profitable. And what became clear, as you say, with with the rise of talk radio and then with uh, cable news and um, with partisan website, there is a very good business model in keeping people pissed off and making them feel aggrieved and embattled and like you are the only people who respect them and that those elites, uh, whether it's the elites at Harvard University or the elites at Time Magazine or the New York Times or the elites in the White House, disrespect them, don't care about them and their families, don't share their values. And the activation of that kind of, again, grievance is nothing new. Um, and throughout history, there are all kinds of groups who have all kinds of good reasons to feel all kinds of grievance. But weaponizing grievance uh, comes at a real cost, and that's what we've been watching. And it has become much easier and much more profitable to do with the disruption of the, the kind of mainstream guardrailed media ecosystem. Um, professional journalism, traditional journalism, has also been in search of its own path to profitability. And so you see some of it in a move away from advertising models, move to subscription, um, sometimes cutting out the institution altogether with things like Substack. Um, Do you see any hope for regaining, for professional journalism's regaining trust in those new models? I certainly hope so. And I have to believe that it's possible because the alternative is unthinkable. I think um, it is essential that we as individuals in a free society feel like there are sources of information that we can trust. And for, for newsrooms to rebuild that trust with their readers is going to, you know, require an autopsy about how they lost it in the first place. And I think that's important. But I think some of the new business models and the experiments with nonprofit newsrooms, with um, different ways of financing news. I'm not. I don't think it's automatically a good thing that, as much as we would have battles over, uh, do you dare alienate this big advertiser? Right. That used to be the ethical challenge of the newsroom. We want to write an expose about this company, but this company is a big advertiser, and they'll pull their advertising if we write a negative story. Well, that was a problem, and we all had to navigate that. The problem with if your revenue source is now your reader is do you then become wary of alienating your readers? And do you find yourself tempted to be giving them what they want and you know just making confirmation bias your business model and not challenging them, not presenting them with voices and information clips with their priors? So there are, there are traps everywhere you turn. I think that the some of the efforts that are percolating in Congress about trying to especially um, restore a viable model for local journalism are critically important. Uh, we know from the research that people like Penny Abernathy have done uh, that when a community loses its newspaper, all kinds of bad downstream effects happen. Um, and not just that like people are less informed about what's going on at the school board. You have public spending goes up because there's less kind of budget accountability. Public corruption goes up. Fewer people run for office. Um, 
the politics becomes more nationalized because you don't really have a way of knowing as individuals the positions of two candidates who are competing. All you know is this one's on team red and this one's on team blue. And so every race becomes a national race. And the, the local media that has disappeared, that vacuum gets filled. What does it get filled by? Well, it gets filled often by disinformation or it gets filled by national news that is of its nature often much more polarized. And so the, you know, local, local newsrooms that know their readers, know their audiences, are in their community, are known by their, uh, their readers. It's a very different transaction than when the people making editorial decisions are thousands of miles away and have no idea what the particular pressures are in a given day. And so I, you know, another of our initiatives at Shorenstein is looking at some of the experimentation around different ways of financing local news. Um, and even what should count? Here's a hard question for you. If you have uh, legislation moving through Congress that would, for instance, provide a tax credit if you subscribe to a local newspaper, great. Let's you know encourage people to be uh, supporting their local newsrooms. Who qualifies as a local newspaper? You have an increasing number of the so-called pink slime sites, which are partisan sites that look and feel like a news site. And unless you do some real digital forensics to know, okay, who owns this site? Who's publishing it? Is it affiliated with either a partisan um, political organization or candidate? Or You can think that you are reading this local Michigan news site for, you know, the, uh, when in fact you're reading a partisan site. So how, how do we even decide what are the qualities that you have to have in order to qualify as a news site and be uh, eligible for any kind of charitable deduction, tax credit, public support? You know, is it, well, you have to um, be transparent about your ownership. You have to publish corrections when you make mistakes. You have to, you know, what are the, what are the different criteria that uh, at, a, at a baseline so that we know that like Infowars should not qualify but you also definitely want the Des Moines Register to. So where on the continuum is the cutoff point? And similarly, if you're talking about public support for local newsrooms, does the New York Times count? It covers New York. It doesn't necessarily need um, government largesse in the way that you know the Sacramento Bee does, which once had a newsroom of more than 400 reporters and when it was you know, bought by Vulture Capital and restructured, how you get down to 40 and it's, you know, you, you see this over and over and over and over again. So um, I think that we need to be very strict about, especially if we're talking about different ways of providing public and private support to newsrooms that we are giving it to the newsrooms that are actually in service to their local communities. Well, clearly uh, a lot of questions ahead on uh, where we go now with the, with the media industry. Let's pivot a bit. Um, we talk a lot about leadership on this, on this show, and you have interviewed some of the world's greatest, most prominent leaders. Um, I, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but I, I don't know the answer, Nancy. Who impressed you the most of all those people that you got to meet? 
you know, one of the um, things that strikes me with almost any leader I have interviewed, and it doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter you know, where on the spectrum they fall. It's the reasons I, I liked writing about presidents, is that leadership is hard. And particularly in our current environment, we tend to, to caricature our leaders um, and forget that they suffer from pain and insecurity and self-doubt. And that especially when you're in a leadership position, by its, by its very definition, your job is to make decisions. The easy decisions are made down the food chain. Decisions that get to you are going to be hard, which means that no matter what you decide, you're going to have regrets. And there is a good argument for deciding the other way, as in the very definition of that's why it's a hard decision. And so I, I have never come away from any interview without thinking, okay, no, you're not allowed to feel sorry for yourself. No one's ever going to feel sorry for you. You're one of the most powerful men or women in the world, so you can't whine. But I come away being reminded that, God, this is a hard job. And God, there are a lot of things that are going to have you tossing and turning of, did I get that right? And if I didn't, what am I going to do about it? And what's going to be the cost? And can I fix it? And so, and again, this has been, I have felt this every bit as strongly, no matter what the kind of ideology of the leader is. It is in the nature of, of the role and of being responsible for the welfare and well-being of other people. And that's true if you're leading a company that has, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of employees. And it's true if you're leading a nation. And so I, 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 I bemoan the draining of sympathy from our conversation about leadership, where it's, it's, it's all about strategy and not about sympathy. And I, this is where I feel like uh, one of the things that served me best in a leadership position was being surrounded by people who I didn't just trust, which I absolutely did, but that I that, that they knew I trusted them, which meant they could tell me when I was absolutely wrong and do that without worrying about their jobs. It's like the single most valuable asset I had in leadership was, was believing that people were not just saying, boy, nice shoes, you really look great today. What can I do make your day? And, you know, President Bush, uh, Bush 43, used to joke about this, about how, you know, he says, people wake up in the morning absolutely determined to come in and give me hell. And they walk into the Oval Office and it's like, nice time, Mr. President. How are you doing? <laughs> like he, you know, he would see the effect that, that the aura of leadership has on other people. And it's a very, very, very small circle around them, especially if it's a head of state. But I'm sure this is, you know, almost equally true in this in a C-suite, um, that the circle of people who will honestly tell you uh, the absolute truth, and you still have the right and duty as a leader to say, okay, I disagree with you, but you really want to hear it. And so this goes back to sympathy, where that transaction of, I trust you to tell me the truth, you trust me not to fire you or punish you in some way if I don't like what you're saying, um, and I may agree with you and I may not, but it's a transparent transaction and it's one based on mutual respect for our larger obligations to the people we serve. 
and that duty of truth and candor, I think, won't be successful without a, a, a duty of concern and sympathy that goes with it. So um, I have I have yet to meet many leaders who, uh, as ambitious and hard driving and bare knuckled as they may be, I, there isn't a one that I didn't think still, um, well, maybe there's one that has occasion to, to ask themselves in the middle of the night whether they got it right. Who was the one? Yeah, you, I'll let you guess. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll leave that question hanging in there. Let's let's close on one other question, which is, um, you know, from from your position uh, where you've seen uh, history in the making uh, and often wrote, in many cases, the most stirring first draft of that history, including the Time cover story about 9/11. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the media industry and of America? I have to be optimistic because the alternative is despair. And I'm not well wired for despair. And and it would also make me give up. And I'm surrounded every day by too many people who are so committed to the conviction that we can make things better. I think this is a very bruising time in our country's history. And there are a lot of things that scare the hell out of me. That I'm but that just makes me want to work harder and makes me grateful to be able to enlist as allies, a really diverse group of people who might never find themselves aligned, um, who are very different in their worldviews, but share a concern for the health of our civic fabric. And we're, so we may not agree on tax policy, or we may not agree on trade policy, or we may not have the same idea about you know, early childhood education or a million other things, but we're going to agree that a society is going to be at pains to succeed if it doesn't have a shared body of fact that we can argue over. And then we can have the argument over what to do about trade and taxes and early childhood. But you can't even have those arguments. You can't even hope to move society forward if you aren't starting with a shared body effect. And so that's why I, I think of the challenge now as being another environmental challenge. You know, we talk a lot about what is it going to take to improve water quality and air quality and, and be good stewards of our environment. And that's the way I think about the information environment, where what are we going to do to prevent pollutants from flooding our information streams um, and harming us individually and collectively? How do we both promote the spread of good information that people need to make good decisions for themselves, for their families, for their businesses, for their communities? How do we make we, we increase access to good information and let then give people maximum freedom to act on it? And how do we block the spread of bad information, which I think of as being the thing that takes away people's freedom and limits them? And and uh, so that to me now is the battle of our generation. And in a way, it's an unexpected one. And it's one that is, you know, there, there's no, there's no, no uh, playbook for how we do this. This is very new territory. We're, we're finding ourselves facing conditions that I don't think we could have imagined even five years ago. And so uh, I'm optimistic because of the talent and commitment I see around me and the determination of people 
to find solutions. It isn't that I necessarily see them and think that it's obvious what the solutions are, but I'm convinced that with this level of awareness of mistakes, that this country, which has a real history of rising to the occasion, will rise to the occasion again. Well, thank you, Nancy. That is a, a very stirring call to action, both for us as citizens and as practitioners of uh, our profession. We are stewards of truth, but the thought. Nancy Gibbs, thank you so much for being on The Human Factor and an incredible conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom.